labor exploitation is labor exploitation, whether it happens in the nonprofit world or the for-profit world or in the homework world or the educational world. It also applies in in self-employment. It's all still labor exploitation. And I believe very strongly that the most fundamental thing is that organizations, businesses, institutions need to be set up in a way in which the people doing the labor are not exploited. What does it really take to become successful as a writer or artist? There are a lot of destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. We're told we shouldn't care about worldly success or money. We're told that if we're good enough, everything would magically fall into place. That's a lie, and it keeps us struggling, baffled, and hungry for any shred of information that might shed light on how to keep making the work we love. That's why I get any two artists or writers or any creatives, really, together in a room, and it's a foregone conclusion that the conversation will turn to money and the nitty-gritty reality of being a professional creative. I'm cartoonist and creative business coach Jessica Abel. In my own life, those studio visit back-channel conversations with other artists where we share our insights and hacks, anxieties and red flags, have been critical to any success I've achieved. And now, I'm bringing that conversation to you. This is The Autonomous Creative. I am so excited to welcome our guest today on The Autonomous Creative, Tara McMullen. Tara is a writer, podcaster, and producer who explores what it takes to navigate the 21st century with your humanity intact, which sounds like something we all need. She has a new book out called What Works, a Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting, which is not actually about goal setting at all. She's also been sharing ideas that derive from her research for that book over the last year or so on her podcast, which is also called What Works. And I got to say, some of these ideas have totally cracked open new vistas for me and transformed how I'm working. And I think they might do so for you as well. Tara and I have actually known each other since 2015, back when she was a business strategist and coach, and she was my first ever coach. And from then on, her pragmatic and grounded coaching and her focus on strategy over flash has become part of my business's DNA. If you ever wonder how I got to be the kind of coach and thinker I am, Tara is a big part of that story. So I'm super excited to get to dive into how Tara's career evolved from retail to coaching to a membership and how her latest pivot to what is essentially a journalistic mode is going. And we'll jump right into the deep end after this. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by The Creative Engine. I talk to working creative people all the time, both on the show and in our membership, The Autonomous Creative Collective, and one of the biggest challenges they struggle with is procrastination. To most people, it feels like it's just a permanent character flaw, like they were born that way and doomed to suffer. But that's just absolutely untrue. Art is hard, yes, and we will all feel resistance to using that much cognitive energy on anything. But procrastination typically stems from specific root causes that are totally fixable. If your creative work is essential to you and who you are and your life, yet you still struggle with procrastination and it just feels like this is crazy, I want to invite you to check out the free Creative Engine Masterclass. This class will help you overcome your resistance and put your priorities first before you're derailed by everything else. The Creative Engine is a complete, simple, straightforward, and powerful framework that will help you pinpoint where your creative process breaks down and highlight exactly how to fix it. 
In it, you'll master the four essential phases of the creative process you need to produce awesome work reliably. And you're probably skipping at least one, possibly two. You'll learn how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. And you'll overcome self-sabotage, take back control, and keep moving even when things get really challenging. This class is totally free, and you will get immediate deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects by harnessing the power of your own creative engine at jessicaable.com slash engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Now let's start the show. Tara, thanks for being here and welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for that introduction. That made my heart very warm. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I've been so excited to have this chat with you and have a chance to really dig into these ideas because you've been throwing stuff at me all year and I haven't had anyone to talk to about it. So this is going to be great. So let's start because a lot of people here may not be familiar with you. I would just want to start a little bit in your history, giving people a sense of your journey a little bit. One mm -hmm. of the reasons I joined your program back in 2015 is that you were a band geek and a religion major in college and you wore your Star Trek love on your sleeve. You were definitely my people, but here you were in the yes. business world. I mean, you're so strategic and you are so smart. No manifesting, no energy magic, way more Spock than Kirk. So I figured if anybody is going to be able to make this bizarro world comprehensible, it would be you. So how did you go from liberal arts to business coaching? Such a great question. So... Yes, I was a religion major in college. I was a double major in music for quite a while as well and just decided to focus on religion at the end. But I would say that probably since I was 11 or 12 years old, I was really driven by questions about why people do the things that they do, how our beliefs, our worldview impact the way we interact with the world. And at that time, I was thinking most about that in terms of religion and religion, very broadly speaking. And so that was sort of what inspired me to pursue that academic line of study. And I loved it. I loved every single minute of it. In fact, my plan was to go on to grad school, get my PhD, go into academia, that seemed like where my life was going and absolutely what I wanted to do. And it was what I wanted to do. And I got into grad school. I got into my top choice grad school. And two weeks before I was supposed to leave and move up to Syracuse, I was at the depth of a major depressive episode. I was completely burnt out from college for all sorts of reasons that I did not understand at the time that I do now. And that all led to sort of a crisis of confidence around what am I going to do with a PhD in religious studies? Like, am I ever going to be able to get an academic job? And those are some valid questions. Right? Like, this, was, this was not like... Big time. Yeah, it was not irrational. And it led to the decision to quit grad school before I even started, which then led me to getting a full-time job at the retail store that I was working at at the time, which was a Borders Books and Music. May she rest in peace. Um, 
But Borders was a great place for me to end up if I was going to end up someplace other than academia at that time in my life because I was still surrounded by people who loved ideas. I was surrounded by people who loved art and words and music, film and coffee. And it, it was just a great place to be. But the other great thing about Borders is that especially in that early aughts time, they were really allowing a ton of leeway with local stores so that each store ran to a degree more like a local business than a national chain. And so I learned actually a ton about management, merchandising, sales, profit and loss and payroll and HR and all of these things that had I been a manager at a different chain, I probably would have learned some of, but I wouldn't have had that same agency and a sense of ownership like I did at the borders. And that's really when I started to get interested in business because I'd never been interested in business before that. But I really enjoyed the work that I did there. You know, five years or so after I started that, I was burnt out again for many of the same reasons as I was burnt out after college. I was just becoming a new mom, and I decided I needed to be done with that. I wanted to be done with it. And I had heard about people making money online. And I thought, well, if these moms can work from home and take care of their kids at the same time, well, then I can do that too. And so that's when, that was 2008, that's when I really started to move into the business world and sort of understanding what was happening in the market at the time, how people were making money online, how these kind of small digital first businesses were being built. And I had already been a blogger. I actually started a blog in 2003, and if only I would have kept up with that, but that's a different story. So I knew blogging. I knew that I loved doing it. I knew that I could do it in terms of like just keeping up with content. I loved to write. And so I went headfirst into blogging at that point in time. But what I found was that as much as people liked my writing about the independent maker movement or about style or design, what they really loved was when I talked about business. Now, I have a little bit of a different frame on that now here in 2022, but I felt like, okay, this is something that I can really understand. This is something that I can share with people in hopefully a way that makes sense to them. And it's something that I can really, I can dig into this. This is interesting to me. And what I discovered was that that same question of why do people do the things that they do? Why do they make the decisions that they make? Why do they, how do their beliefs translate into action? Those same questions are at the basis of business strategy and marketing and sales and all of that. And so I found myself scratching those same itches with business. Now, you know, here 14 plus years later, I have really started to dig back into those questions more explicitly. And so I knew those questions were important to me and I knew those questions were driving my work in terms of business coaching and strategy and marketing. But I was ready to let those questions really come to front and center in my own work. Again, being burnt out for all the same reasons and wanting to make that shift in my work is really what has brought me to this place where I am, as you said, taking a more journalistic perspective. So 
in so many ways, it looks like my last 20 years is this very weird journey of all sorts of different things. But for me, there is a very distinct, very thick through line on the whole thing. Definitely in terms of your interests and what you want to be helping people with, but just doing it in different modes, because there's been a bunch of different modes. You were a coach when I met you, and then you became more of a strategist, and then you started running a membership, and now you're sharing your podcast, your articles, and that kind of thing. So you have this kind of, there's different modes of doing it, but the content is the same. And and I was thought it was really interesting that you, you were saying that you saw the same questions being asked, the same needs being dealt with in business that you did in religious studies, which I think for my crowd, people who are here today, that can feel really like challenging to think that. Mm-hmm. But the idea of running a business, especially something that's a solo business or a small business, that it's really like existential in a way that religion is also existential. It's about what you, how you take care of yourself and how you live literally how you pay your bills like how you but also like what do you do day to day and how who do you identify with and who are you working with you know over the last couple years you've really opened my eyes to the whole concept that a creative business any business could and should be built to meet basic needs first life needs human needs first and some of those needs include creative expression but creative expression can't be the top of the pyramid. It is, you know, not the thing that you need to be filtering for first. And typically for creatives, that is, like, I want to express this thing and therefore I have to do something. And it's so hard to make that work. But instead working the other way around. So this is a totally new concept for a lot of creatives. How and when did this understanding dawn for you? This idea of kind of flipping things around that way. I think that it started to bubble up when I heard from folks that some of the things that I was talking about in terms of building a business seemed to be sort of too big, too grand, and that they just wanted to have, quote unquote, enough. And I felt very unsure about, well, what do you mean when you say enough? And what I came to find out, not all the time, but most of the time, is that there was a lot of fear about pricing, fear about earning money, fear about selling that led people to discount and diminish the needs that they actually had. And so when they were saying enough, enough wasn't really true, right? It was a word that sounded good, that sounded like it fit into a different model of capitalism, for instance, But really, it was masking this subordination of their real material needs in order to lift up self-expression, creative needs, just feeling good about showing up and saying you're running a business every day without actually marketing or selling anything, right? Mm -hmm. And, And for creatives, too, I think there's the whole piece of feeling like you aren't allowed to yeah, foreground your needs because that would mean that somehow you love your work less. If you are insisting on being paid and putting that first, what does that mean about your love for your work? Does it make you does it make you less than as a creative? Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's so there's all the pervasive stories that are embedded into our brains. Like even if you say, Oh, I don't buy into the starving artist myth, right? It's still in there. 
going back to that like religion piece of like, what are the stories? What are the beliefs that guide our actions? That's a story that most of us have integrated into just the way we see the world. And so we can intellectually say, oh, that's not true. You don't need to starve and be an artist. The pull of that story is so much stronger than the pull of our intellectual knowledge that that's not the case. And so it's a constant practice Mm -hmm. of, of reworking those things, right? Yeah. So that's where I first started to notice people not really thinking about their material or financial needs ahead of sort of creative expression or self actualization. But more recently, and especially with the onset of the pandemic, what I started to notice was the messaging around just jobs in general, work in general, shifting to put um, that creative, that fun, that passion piece in front of Mm -hmm. pay, safety, benefits, time off, all of those things. And it made me realize, oh, this is a much bigger problem than I have realized in the past. And so when I started to research it, I found that luckily other people were researching it too with way more research resources and knowledge than I have. Um, And so a sociologist named Lindsay De Palma did a study of engineers, graphic designers, and nurses. Those were the three groups that she chose. And she documented a phenomenon that she calls the passion paradigm. And I'm going to get the exact numbers off, but just know that I'm very much in the ballpark. Thank you. 77%. (laughs) That's good. That is what I quoted someone the other day, too, when I gave the same caveat. Thank you. 77% of the people that she talked to believed that being passionate about your work was more important than how much you got paid. Right? (laughs) And even like that's nurses. Nurses think this. What? Yeah. So that's bad enough, but it gets worse in that people believe that finding work you're passionate about is available to everyone and that it is our responsibility to find work that we're passionate about, even if it doesn't pay as well. And so we we know just from like an equity standpoint that not everyone has access to work that they're passionate about. And the way we define passion about our work is exclusive of a lot of work that society needs and that we need to pay people well for. And so when I when I realized that this was a much larger trend, that was something that I felt, okay, we really need to call this out. We need to start looking at how this is manifesting among the people that I speak to and I write for. And so it's For me, it's been a lot of reckoning with what are the business models people think they should have? What are the marketing strategies they think they should have, given what influencers tell them, given what seems to be the new trends that are out there, given what they see other people doing versus what are the business models that actually get their bills paid, that actually get their material needs met, that allow them to hire help at appropriate rates, that allow them to take time off and buy health insurance? But let me pause you right there for a sec. Yeah, yeah. Because we need to define business models. Because for a oh, lot sure. of people who are here, they may not know what we mean by that. And I yeah. think it's such an essential concept I want everybody to get. So can you just tell us super briefly, what's a business model? 
your business model is essentially the system that you use to deliver, create, and exchange value. And so all that means is it is the underlying system of how you get paid in your business and how you create the work that people want to pay for. And yeah, I could spend, well, I have spent many, many, many thousands of words going further into it, but that's, that's I have the long two, and short but I just, of it. Yeah, the long and short yeah. is <laughs> like, what do you make or do? Who do you do it for? And how do you sell it to them? And how do you deliver it to them? And those, basically those pieces, and you can see how different choices about that would play out differently in terms of the way your life goes. You know, are you trying to deliver to lots and lots of people? Are you trying to deliver to a few people? That's going to have a big impact on what your life looks like day to day. Yeah. And this, the system part of it is really important because a lot of times what happens, especially I think with really creative folks, is that they make decisions, we make decisions independent of the other decisions that we've made, right? So we choose a particular marketing strategy. We choose a particular offer. We choose a particular customer that we want to serve. We choose a particular service or product that we're going to offer. And we sort of think, oh, well, if I just choose what works for me or choose what I like best or choose what everybody else is doing in each of those different categories, well, everything's going to work out or like this is my best shot, worse. But instead, each one of those decisions should be influencing the other decisions, right? So building an audience on Instagram is awesome. And what is the product that's going to go along with that and make sense with that or vice versa? If you're selling high-end commission illustration, having a portfolio on Instagram is probably a great move. But building an audience? Would I spend my time? No, I wouldn't. I would spend my time doing other things. And so all that to say, again, that those decisions are not independent of each other, that to make a, to have a business that takes care of your material needs, your financial needs, and allows you to do work that you do want to do, that you are passionate about, hopefully, those decisions all need to be made in conjunction with the others. Yes, so much so. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you said, you you have an article called Always On, The Hidden Labor We Do Every Day that's essentially about the free labor we donate to giant social media titans. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> makes me, me so angry. Made me want to gag. Uh, so highly recommended. But th that article, you quote Adrian Daub talking about social media saying, and I just wonder if this just isn't relevant to not just social media maybe more problematic for social media, but it just in general. But the problem isn't that the act of providing content is ignored or uncompensated, but rather that it isn't recognized as labor. Yeah. And this, this was really helpful to me to sort of understand those weird shoulds around social media. But it also made me think of just artists and writers in general. And typically we're told that we should be grateful to be able to do what we love and not expect to be paid because it's not actually labor. Right. I mean, I had a, a live event the other day with and a man was there who was saying, I was asking, how much time do you spend on your creative business? And he's like, well, it's X number of hours, but that's not the actual writing part because that's just a joy for me. And I was like, no, 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 that goes in. <laughs> you have to put that in. So, yeah. Yeah, I could spend an hour talking about that Adrian Dobb quote just on its face, but 
One of the other things that he talks about in that book, and it's a great book, it's called What Tech Calls Thinking. Um, and it's sort of a philosophical exploration of, of a lot of the pervasive stories in Silicon Valley. But one of the things he talks about around that sort of not recognized as labor piece is that there is a masculine version of labor that is lionized in Silicon Valley. And then there's a feminine or a feminine coded feminized. version of labor. Right. That is completely just, well, this is just what people do. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you think of a site like Yelp, Yelp doesn't exist without people reviewing things. Right. Well, something like 90 percent of the people who leave reviews on Yelp are women. Wow. Right. Yeah, I know. And I could have that wrong, but it is predominantly women leaving reviews on Yelp. And so the men who own Yelp, again, predominantly, are benefiting from that free labor. Now, and you might think, oh, OK, well, reviews, that's that's not really labor. It is. And when we think about putting our work on something like Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or any of the places that we're putting work that others are benefiting from, and by others, I mean the companies, the platforms themselves, we're putting creative labor onto these platforms. And I'm not against doing that, right? I do it on a regular basis. But we're putting this creative work on these platforms for free. And what it is essentially doing is making their algorithms better. And the better their algorithms get, the more we put on there to create ad inventory for them, the more money they make. And how much money do we actually make from that? There are people who make good money with the content that they put on Instagram in one way or another. But the vast majority of people are not being properly compensated for that time. It's just something that they, they feel, as you said, that they should be doing, that they're supposed to be doing. So they do it and it almost counts not as part of their workday. Mm -hmm. They might do it watching TV in the evening or early in the morning while they're still in bed, right? Again, guilty as charged. Like, I'm not saying anything I'm, I'm not complicit in. But I think it is important to recognize that when we are saying, OK, I'm going to go build an audience on Instagram, that we are putting actual labor hours that need to be compensated into a platform that will be making profit from that time, whether we actually make anything from it or not. Yeah, their motives are completely not aligned with ours. Their motives are make more stuff, make more stuff that's sticky, make more stuff that keeps people on the app not go to the person's site and buy the thing, not take this conversation offline and buy a painting or whatever it is. It's funny because you talk about this idea of each decision being made independently. And this mm -hmm. was one, reading that article was one of those moments where I was able to sort of like put a whole bunch of threads together that had made sense. Like I understood these different things, but they didn't kind of mesh that literally Instagram doesn't exist unless yeah. we make free stuff. Yes. It literally it doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. <laughs> We make the product. We that are they the product. Sell. Yes. Right. And the more we make, the more ad inventory they have because they can only put so many ads in a feed that only has so much content, right? So, like, let's say you get an ad every three posts. Well, if you get an ad every three posts, it's in Instagram's best interest to incentivize you to post as much as possible. 
they're not doing that for your benefit. They're doing that for their benefit. And they might say, oh, this is how creators get paid. And this is this is what's good for creators. And look at all these tools we're making for creators. No, all they care about. And I, I always try so hard not to sound just completely jaded and cynical. But go for it. Seriously, their business case is just getting you to create more content. And so, yeah, they're going to pull every lever they have to get you to write more words into the machine, to get you to post more images that they can index, to get you to get more followers onto their platform. That's what's in their best interest. And if that's not in your best interest, or if you are not receiving commensurate reward for that, why, why, why spend so much time there? Absolutely. And there's so much lack of People just don't question it, you know, they just, and I understand why, because it is literally everywhere. The message that this is what you need to do presumably comes from Instagram originally, but then people are like, hey, this worked for me. And then they're, you know, it just becomes it's this self-repeating. Anyway, we yeah. could talk about this the entire totally. time. So let me shift gears a little bit. Okay. So you have gone, as I, as I referred to earlier, you've made a number of shifts in how you're working over the years, notably when you stopped mostly stopped coaching and shifted to a membership for small businesses, which was really a wonderful experience to sort of meet all these other people. And then you wound that down too and shifted into this new mode, sort of journalistic researcher mode. You talk about how like it's all these different things you've been doing, but it really, it's full circle. In fact, Lou was helping me do some research, my assistant Lou, and they found a tweet about a PhD program. Are you? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I haven't made any decisions yet, but I am considering going back to school next year. So interesting. So I want to hear a little bit about how you made this huge decision. And I would really love it if you would speak a little bit to how being diagnosed with autism fed into that. There's so many people who are neurodivergent in creative communities. And it's just really, I think I find it really helpful for people to talk about how they've come, how they've negotiated that. Yeah. So the... Autism diagnosis is was a huge catalyst, not just for recognizing that the decision needed to be made, but for illuminating so many decisions that were made in my life. So I mentioned, you know, after college, I was burnt out and I didn't know why, but I do know now after borders, I was burnt out after this, that, and the other thing as a business owner, I was burnt out. And it's, it is a very common pattern with autistic people and specifically autistic women where we will go through these cycles of putting our whole selves into whatever it is that we're trying at that time. So whether it's school or whether it's a career, a job, family, and because we don't one of one of the hallmarks of autism is sort of um, what they call monotropism, which is sort of a single mindedness. And so it is really hard for me to do anything other than the thing that is right in front of me and is the thing that I want to be doing. And of course, this drives people nuts in our in relationships, right? Like my husband would really prefer me to be able to do things that are not directly in front of me. Um, but all of that leads to this wholesale outpouring of energy that drains and drains and drains and drains because at the same time, 
we're involved or I'm involved, although I've, I've heard this pattern just so many times now, we're involved in activities that are also draining by virtue of what we're putting our energy into. So whether that's managing people mm. or dealing with close social connections in college, that was a huge piece for me. It wasn't the schoolwork that burnt me out. It was being surrounded by people all the time. And I can remember in my last year of, of college, I realized that if I I could just go to the library and just sit and be by myself, whether it was just to dink around on my laptop or to read a book or to do some schoolwork, like just being alone for a couple of hours was a revelation. Anyhow, so yeah, so these different cycles of burnout, I realized in the process of, of learning that I was autistic, make complete sense in that, you know, if, if we're looking through that lens, and there's actually a researcher named Catherine Tan who coined the term biographical illumination for this process, which I love. And so definitely, and it still happens to me now, it's like, oh, that's an autistic thing. That's an autistic trait. And that explains this and this and this and this and this in my personal history. So anyhow, all of that to say that being diagnosed as autistic helped me put into context a lot of different things that I was feeling, a lot of different things that I was going through, a lot of the physical, physiological problems that I was having as I was getting more and more burnt out. And so I kind of lost my train of thought there. But eventually it led to realizing that while I had set myself up in a business that values-wise was 100% aligned to me and philosophically was 100% aligned to me, it was 0% aligned to my personality and my neurology and the way that I work. And it was slowly killing me. And I, I don't say that lightly. I say that because that could have been where things ended up. And so it was less a strategic decision to step away from that and more of a, this is a personal necessity for me. And so again, like to kind of tie back to what we were talking about with material needs, it was a material need for me to say, I cannot work like this anymore. It doesn't matter how much I believe in it. doesn't matter how great the people are. I can't do this anymore because this, is, this work is making me sick. So that was the end of 2021. And you are completely right that I've been, I have come 100% full circle I am back to essentially being a blogger again, only we call it different things now because no one wants to be called a, a blogger. So it's like newsletter writer or just writer. I was just going to say, is there a name for it then if it's not? It's just writing. It's just writing. You're an author. Um, yeah, an author. Yes, that's a new one for me officially anyway. Yeah, and then podcasting. But bringing a very different perspective than what a lot of folks who focus on blogging for business, newsletter writing for business, podcasting for business bring. And it's the only perspective that I feel comfortable in, which is let's ask questions, let's do some research, let's talk to people about their own experiences and their own expertise, and like let's get to the bottom 
of this? And what else is going on here? What are the beliefs that are creating this or that trend? What's the worldview that's creating challenges for people? And so it's it's absolutely the work that I was doing in college. It was the work that I started doing when I became a blogger. And it is the work that I absolutely love to do. So I don't know if I answered your question. But oh, no, you totally kind of did. I mean, okay. Absolutely, deeply. But I'm also curious at a more technical and strategic level, you talked about this idea of designing a business model, starting with your needs. And this, as mm-hmm. I said, again, was like a huge influence on me and the program that I'm running now, the incubator, and how I designed that. So that idea of starting with your needs, your neurological need for working in a certain way was something mm-hmm. you weren't fully aware of. You knew about it. I mean, I remember you talking about it years ago. But you didn't have the right sort of framework for it in order to be able to kind of insist on it, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, what did your actual process of deciding what you were going to do look like? Did you use, you know, one of your little equations? (laughs) No, (laughs) I didn't. In short, it was basically it was such an emergency for me to stop what I was doing that there was no forethought into how I was going to leap into something new. Other than I had finished a book proposal and was in the process of selling a book. And we were at a place where I knew that the book deal was going to happen. It hadn't been like signed yet, but everyone was moving forward. It was just negotiations that had to be be done. And so I had that little bit of, you know, I guess golden parachute kind of thing. I didn't have a huge advance, but I had enough that I could say, all right, I can take at least three months off and write this book. And that's I, more than anything else. That's what I need right now. That's going to help me feel better. It's going to help me get healthier again. And I also want to acknowledge that my husband and I have a podcast production agency as well. So not only do we produce my podcast, but we produce about a dozen other podcasts as well. And so that business brings in very reliable revenue. It could grow much larger than it currently is if we decide to do that. And so I had that as sort of like, I didn't have the The stakes were not as high as they used to be. I used to be basically our only provider. That wasn't the case anymore. So it was easier for me to make that leap. And I I recognize all of the privilege in that for sure. I wouldn't call that privilege, though. I just want to say, like, you built that business. And I don't I know I remember when you started it. Well, I don't know for sure, but I suspect it wasn't like I need a safety net. I'm going to build another business because I need like a bat. You know, it was like, I'm excited about podcasting and I want to do this thing. Um, yeah. And you, at that point, I know, did very carefully design your business model and very much started from your needs. You've written about how, for example, Sean needs naps, which is I love. So like it's designed around his need for naps, which is awesome. And like you did that work there. It's a business you started and run. Why is that privilege? I mean, I think it's privilege in that I don't actually do a lot of work in that business. So I'm privileged to be in a partnership where he has a a sizable income that we can rely on while I am still working things out. And I totally agree with you, too, that there was, you know, I have done a lot of work in getting that business off the ground. And I think one of the things so you had said, like, you probably didn't think about it as starting a safety net. 
but I actually was thinking about it as starting a safety net. I did. I was not thinking about exiting my individual business at that time, but I was thinking about how do I, how do we create a line of revenue that is less reliant on me, less dependent on marketing, less just fewer ups and downs, fewer demands on my time. And so in the process of setting up that business, we set it up so that our service offerings were designed to bring in predictable, steady, good revenue. And we designed it so that I could inject my intellectual property, essentially, into the business in terms of like, this is what makes a good podcast for a business. This is how, you know, you do interviews. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. And and Sean's taken those things and run with it now so that it's way more him than it is me. But I was able to sort of front load that investment into that company. You're exactly right. As a way of kind of evening things out on the back end. So it wasn't a safety net initially from an exit standpoint, but it was a safety net in terms of like, I needed the psychological safety net that this was there and it wasn't so much all on me anymore. So yeah. So that maybe was part of like what was going on a little bit for you. Yeah. Maybe you were setting up a safety net without knowing that you were. I don't mean just a financial one, but like you didn't want to start a new business that would rely on you in the same way. And even if you weren't looking for an exit, there must must have been part of you that was like, this is the model that I need. This is the thing that I need. Yeah, a hundred percent. It was, we designed that business so that I was not doing work on it on a regular basis, right? You know, I might meet with a few clients over the course of a month just for extra support. But other than that, and maybe some stuff on Canva, I don't do anything in that business, much to Sean's chagrin sometimes. But yeah, so that's created the space then for me to explore this year. What does it look like to put 100% of my focus into creating content, creating work that is that stands on its own. One of the things I talked on a podcast recently about was sort of this move from creating content as a content marketer to creating just great content. And there are still financial considerations. There's still audience considerations with that. But it's a very different thing to be writing every week, podcasting every week with the idea that this is leading to a sale than it is to be creating something that I believe is impeccable and trusting that I'm going to be able to create a revenue model from that that's a little less piecemeal than what I've had this year. But it's been a very freeing transition. And this year has very much been, you know, it's been nine months now since I stepped away from the old business And it's very much been sort of trying this, trying that, seeing what I like, seeing what I don't like, and doing just enough to create the space to continue doing that until I I land on something that I really want to move forward with. That makes so much sense. One of the things I talk with people in my audience about is that one of your choices in terms of being 
a big C creative, being a creative person as that's what you're doing. You're making the work you want to be making, which is what you're talking about. It's not so mm -hmm. much, well, it is also marketing versus not marketing, but it's also like self-generated for its own sake. You're following your, your curiosity. It's coming out of your, you know, the things you're putting together. And the choice, one of the choices is I'm not going to try to make that make money. If I, I want to make whatever I want to make, it's not that I would reject money if it came to me, but like, I'm not going to pursue that as a goal because it does change the way that you need to engage with people around it. And the content itself has content marketing at that point, you know? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, layers and layers. Another hour conversation. We yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that I am making exactly the work that I want to be making, and it is not unresponsive to my audience. I think that, and I, I'm not saying this is the only way to do it or the right way to do it, but for me, I know that I'm keeping sort of my irons in the fire in a way by staying in conversation with my audience. So by still sending out newsletters, by still putting out the podcast, by still responding to comments on Instagram when I can or emails when I can even just paying attention. What are the people in my space, the people who are subscribing to my work? What are they thinking about? What challenges do they have? But instead of providing solutions now, because solutions is what sells, you're always selling some sort of solution. Mm -hmm. I'm providing different sort of frameworks for thinking. I'm providing different questions. I'm providing curiosity. And I think that over the course of this year, as you've sort of alluded to, I'm offering that as a service, a free service to my clients, or not my clients, my subscribers. And I, I truly believe that that's going to pay dividends, but it has been an investment in sort of building up this body of work in a way mm -hmm. that shows people there's something different to offer here. And it has its own value in its own way, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I know you're deeply committed to your creative work. And yet, when it comes time to make the thing, it's like you short circuit. Your inner critic comes roaring out and shuts you down. You find your attention dragged off by some other shiny new object. You can't stop feeling guilty and that you should be focusing on paid work. Your clients, your children, friends, boss, parents constantly demand your attention. Here's the thing. There is nothing wrong with you. There's just a breakdown somewhere in your creative engine and you can repair it. I want to invite you to join me for the free Creative Engine Masterclass where you'll learn which tactics will backfire when you're trying to get traction on self-generated creative projects and what to do instead. The four essential phases of the creative process you must implement to produce awesome work reliably, and you're probably skipping at least one. The good news hidden in your long history of valiant efforts to make your creative life work, how to diagnose what's off track and keep moving on your work, even when things get really challenging, and the secret to how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. This class is totally free and you will get immediate, deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick and the specific next step to take to harness the power of your own creative engine. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects when you join the Creative Engine Masterclass at jessicaable.com engine. 
That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Okay, back to the show. So getting back to the new book, What Works? A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. It fits like straight into all the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly what you've been writing about and talking about over the last year has to do with the research and what you've been doing for the book. Basically, though, it was interesting to see how much it's it's about how do we continue to do big, meaningful things in our life without getting caught up in these toxic cycles of self-punishment fed by societal norms, expectations, stories we tell and are told to us and are enforced. How did you end up writing a book kind of about goals when you're like moving away from all of that? Well... Uh, so I kind of know the answer market. to this, but I would like you to share yeah, it with yeah. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is actually a really good, I think, example of kind of what I was just talking about with the difference between solutions and questions or frameworks or curiosities. When you are selling something, and for me, it uh, the burden is less on selling it for me other than doing interviews like this and more on my publisher, right, or more on my agent what kind of book are they going to want to bring to booksellers so that that book moves, right? So that it gets on shelves and then it gets bought. Goals is a thing that people buy books on every single year. It is woven into the fabric of our consumer capitalist society, right? And that's a lot of what actually the book is about and and how that is harmful And so the book is about goals, but it's actually about cultural systems, history, worldviews, work patterns, all of those things that have become the way we think about goals, as opposed to thinking about what we actually want for our lives. All we can construct that day by day, little bit by little bit is speaks to kind of acknowledging limitations. And a lot of books about goal setting, a lot of talk about goal setting doesn't like to acknowledge limitations, right? If you can dream it, you can do it. If you believe in it, anything is possible. If you believe in yourself, anything is possible. And I say, no, that is not true. I have dreamed all sorts of things that I know I am not capable of doing, that they are not for me to do, that they are past my limitations. However, By acknowledging my limitations, I can also acknowledge all the things that I can do that no one else can or that very, very few people can. And if I'm cognizant of that, if I'm careful about my capacity, what can I create for myself and for others in order to, as you said, do big things without striving after what I'm supposed to do or what I should do? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's really the sort of the nut of the book is this push and pull that we experience just as a part of American society and largely a thing that we've exported to the rest of the world. And so kind of wrestling with that tension and finding a way to navigate through it so that we can still dream, have a vision, think about what we want to do next, what we want to experiment with, without getting bogged down into details that aren't really about us, but are instead about furthering systems of harm. Yes, so much so. 
This really reminds me, I did an interview with Oliver Berkman about 4,000 weeks oh, yeah. uh, a while back. And this is like the same, it's the same stuff. I teach the same stuff. It's like, it just keeps coming back and back. Yeah. I avoided reading that book precisely because I was like, this is too close to what I'm thinking yeah. about. <laughs> There's a difference between- Have you read it research. now? You should read it now. now I, I'm, I'm planning on it. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things that I just constantly forget about. And I think mm -hmm. maybe even after my book is out into the world, then I will have I will feel okay reading it. Well, I think you'll enjoy it when you do. Your thesis is that big G goals, as you call them, distort our relationship with our work and lead to chronic undercommitment. How does that work? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So big G goals are those things that we are, they're kind of fed into shoulds and supposed tos. Not always, but they're the things that it's like, by the end of this year, I'm going to accomplish X. By the end of this quarter, I will have done Z, right? Those are big G goals. That's opposed to little G goals that are those that are the things that just drive our behavior on a day-to-day -day basis. Early goal setting theory talked about goals just as simply meeting needs, right? If you're hungry, your goal is to not be hungry anymore. That's a little G goal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about big G goals. Big G goals lead to chronic overcommitment and undercommitment because they create a system in which we are going after those big G goals as a source of validation. We all want to feel useful. We want to feel valuable. We want to feel worthy. We want mm -hmm. that. And we want kind of external most of us want those sort of external markers of those things as well. And that's, again, that's the system that we operate in. And so because of that, and because we associate these big G goals with actually getting that validation, we tend to rack up as many of those kinds of projects as we can, right? So all sorts of different responsibilities from big things to teeny little things like bringing chocolate chip cookies to the field hockey game, right? Like it can be anything like that. We say yes to those things over and over and over again out of a sense of wanting that validation that we're useful. Even if someone isn't patting you on the back and saying, oh, you're so useful. <laughs> we still know like, oh, this is appreciated. This looks good for me, right? I look like I am a good, valuable, useful, functioning member of society. But what happens is that as those yeses stack up, we spread our resources, which are limited, over all of those different yeses. And so while we might have had enough resources, enough capacity to follow through on, say, three of those responsibilities, as we have 10 responsibilities that we've said yes to, our resources are spread so Thin, that we're actually undercommitted to all of those things we've overcommitted to. We don't have the resources to get the validation that was the reason we said yes in the first place, right? And so either we start burning out or we just continue to function at this low level, undercommitted to these things, which then jumpstarts our need for more validation, right? If you're not doing the things you said you were going to do, or you're not doing them the, to the level that you want to do them, then you're going to go out and do more validation-seeking activities. 
And then you just get caught in this spiral, what I call the validation spiral. And so big G goals really play into that in sort of like a almost like a meta way, right? So we think, well, I'm going to I'm going to build a six-figure business. I'm going to get to 10,000 followers on Instagram. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And we kind of try to stack those things up and pursue as many of them as we can out of a sense of, well, this is going to this is going to prove that this career is valid. This is going to prove that I'm worthy of having a creative career, that I'm worthy of calling myself a creative. And then when it doesn't happen or when we've spread ourselves too thin, we get caught again in that cycle of feeling low and going out and seeking additional validation. And that I've seen with business owners over and over and over throughout the years. I can remember very distinctly someone asked me, is it okay to set a new goal if I didn't achieve the last one? She felt like I have to do this thing before I can say I want to do something different. Yeah. I, I talk about idea debt, this, yes. you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the projects you carry with you. And there's two kinds of idea debt. One is basically perfectionism. It's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not good enough to do this thing. But the other one I call nostalgia, which is like, this is something that I thought I wanted to do at some point in the past, didn't finish it, but I can't put it down because I told myself I would do it. I committed to it, but I don't really want to do it or it doesn't really align with what I want right now, but I'm not allowed to change my mind because that would mean I'm a slacker and I'm not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I would even put another kind of category in there that's maybe like almost like an operational or logistical kind of debt too. So what I mean by that is this woman who asked me this question, she hadn't met her last revenue goal. She wasn't that far off of it, but she hadn't met it. And so she was wondering if she could actually set the goal that I was suggesting for her. This is many years ago when I was still talking about goals in that way. Um, and what was interesting about that is because the goal she had set didn't provide her with the scaffolding she needed to make changes in her business, make changes in the way she worked, she was never actually going to make that goal because she needed a bigger goal. She needed something more to be able to say, oh, I need to change this in the business and this in the business and this in the business. And then that's going to be really possible. That's and designing so I, from your needs, right? That's yes. saying like, this is what I need. And so what does that mean about these other things? Because you told me that years ago, like set a goal that's off, you know, here in the distance and then figure out whatever. And I'm like, how do you do that? How do I imagine myself in this other place? Now I get it. The systems are all connected and you're designing these different pieces to fit together in order, like that's the kind of thing that will get you to this goal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And now I talk about it more in like, what's your destination and what is the kind of map that you're going to make for yourself to get there, knowing that there are so many different trails you can take to get to the top of the mountain, right? It's not, a, it's not linear. It's not first I do this, then I do that. It is a process of learning and growing. And one of the things that we learn as we are setting our sights on a far off destination is that things need to shift that you wouldn't have expected, right? It's not just doing more. It's logistically, this isn't possible the way things are set up now. I need to make these concrete 
changes. And, you know, I'm talking about that in a business context, but it absolutely can be in a personal context, in a work context, really in any context. Yeah, I wanted to actually connect that with, you know, my background as an author, very related to this, where if your goal is this book is going to, I don't know, be a bestseller or something like that. If I get this book to this level of sales or whatever it is, then I'm going to be able to take the time I need in order to write the next book to kind of relax Mm -hmm. and really like lean into it. But you don't meet those goals because they're not actually under your control unless you change everything about the way you're working. And even then, it's there's a lot of luck that goes into it, right? But if you're basing your, your life plan on meeting these goals that you aren't actually set up to meet, you haven't prepared to meet these goals, even if it were possible without luck. I see people all the time winning awards or getting getting recognition for various things, getting a publishing deal, getting this and that, like people in my community doing awesome stuff and not celebrating it because they're they're already on the next thing. They're already like, well, yeah. that's fine, but that's not the goal. The goal is over here. Yeah. And this kind of brings me to one of the, the core concepts of the book, which is this difference between achievement orientation and practice orientation. I always hung my hat on being achievement oriented because I was and still am in very many ways. Like, let's just be real. Girl loves a trophy, a merit badge, uh, you know, if if you an, a badge on an app. Oh, man, the rings on my watch. <laughs> I'm all over it. And I recognize that that achievement orientation is often hijacking other things that I know about myself and my needs and my values. And so instead, what I try to do now and what I recommend in the book is this practice orientation. What is it? What are the habits that I need to develop? What are the daily things that I need to do or that I want to do in order to become the person who is capable of fulfilling the vision that I have for myself? If I'm going to be a full-time author, What do I need to do on a daily basis right now? What do I want to do on a daily basis right now in order to become the person who is a full-time author? That's one of the big questions that I've been wrestling with this year and the kind of the moves that I've been experimenting with. And they all revolve around sort of a base practice of writing But there's also the practice of pitching pieces to other outlets. There's the practice of pitching interviews. There's the practice of research. All of those things are practice. And if I can find, if I can find satisfaction in that practice, then I'm going to be less tied to the particular achievement I have in mind and more likely to actually achieve that thing. (laughs) And hopefully more mindful of that achievement if and when it happens as well. That is awesome. And a perfect place to pivot to just a few questions we have from our live audience today. So one of them, I believe, Emily asked about how you get paid now, which I think we kind of covered. You know, we talked basically at this point, you are taking a dividend from your other company and working part time there. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's that's a perfect way to put that. And I have the book advance that I'm still waiting on the second half of because that's how these things work. I have recurring completely passive revenue from courses that I have made over the last decade with Creative Live. 
And then every so often, one of those pitches that I send out gets picked up and I get a small amount of money for an article that is just, it's, let's not talk about that. And then uh, speaking fees as well. So I can, I get paid to speak. Great. Thank you. All right. Deirdre had a couple questions. And one of them is, how do you feel work-life integration has affected Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Is there a need now to reconsider what's important and how we align our personal life with our work business slash professional lives? Is it time to rewrite the hierarchy? You've already been writing about the hierarchy. So I think you probably have ideas about this. Ideas? How long do you have? So, oh my God. Okay. So Yes, I think a lot about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how that plays into our validation seeking and the passion paradigm and all of those things and hidden labor and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I think that we are operating in a world in which Maslow's hierarchy has already been rewritten, where self-actualization is the starting point instead of the ending point. And That's sort of what that passion paradigm research is all about, is recognizing that, no, people think it's more important to have that sense of self-actualization than it is to pay their rent and eat food and basic needs. And so really my work comes at it from like, why don't we kind of get that hierarchy of needs back in order. I'm not saying it's 100% right, but like it's a much better starting point if we take it at at face value than if we try and flip the pyramid. And I genuinely think that for many of us, the story that we're living in is that pyramid being completely flipped on its head. And we're Although I think that people are living in a sense of like a dual awareness, you know, because yes. there's also this intense feeling of like, I need to take care of my actual needs, my physical needs and my family and my relationships, just yelling at you all the time. But then this feeling that somehow this is somehow more important, the passion piece. Yes. Yeah. And yes. And I think that different people respond to that tension differently, for sure. But that tension is there for, I think, just about all of us. So great to call that out. Also, speaking of Maslow, I did not, unfortunately, come across this in the research for my book. I came across it for research for the podcast months later. But Maslow wrote a management book, I think in the 60s or 70s, where he essentially makes the case that if employers focus on self-actualization, basically they can exploit their workers better. (laughs) He made the case that if employers focused on self-actualization for their workers, then most workers wouldn't need therapy because most workers wouldn't, like the working class wouldn't benefit from therapy either. Just like I'm reading this and it's just terrifying, right? But it has think, actually happened, like has actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's like, oh, my God, this was kind of repulsive. Not kind of. It's repulsive. And this is the world we're living in. And I hate it. So, yeah, just like, let's be real about that. Make sure your basic needs are taken care of. And I, I wish that we had better systems for that collectively. And it's something that I'm trying to contribute to in my own way. And for now, it's kind of on us. So please think about it. And self-actualization 
is not more important than feeding yourself. <laughs> Please remember this in the right moment. Please. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's terrifying. Absolutely it's terrifying. terrifying. Yes. Okay. So Deirdre also asks a totally different question here. How do you feel about the nonprofit industrial complex? As a former executive director of a nonprofit, the dysfunctional version of business where the labor is volunteers and low-paid creative people. How does this fit into the business world or more into how does this fit into this framework? Yeah. So I will say just caveat, this is not something I have direct experience with, but I would say that I have experience with similar environments in the for-profit world. For instance, at Borders, right, we were often fed the line that we shouldn't ask for a raise because we work in this really great environment. We, the company has this great mission, and aren't we lucky to be employed by this company? Mm-hmm. And I think that plays a lot into the nonprofit world as well, which aren't you lucky to be working with an organization that's doing this kind of work? Aren't you lucky to be working toward this mission? And you shouldn't ask for more. You shouldn't expect your needs to be met. Labor exploitation is labor exploitation, whether it happens in the nonprofit world or the for-profit world or in the homework world or the educational world. It's all still labor exploitation. And I believe very strongly that whether we're talking about goal setting or we're talking about business models or we're talking about any of these things, that the most fundamental thing is that organizations, businesses, institutions need to be set up in a way in which the people doing the labor are not exploited. Systems in which the people doing the labor are taken care of. That, to me, must be the starting point for any organization, profit, for-profit or nonprofit. And what if you're working for yourself? Well, same thing. It also applies in in self-employment. I am very big on talking to people about self-exploitation. So kind of going back to the Instagram or the content creation, social media conversation that we had earlier, if you are forcing yourself to work all these hours producing content that you're not being compensated for, even indirectly, that's self-exploitation. If you are constantly reinvesting in the business instead of paying yourself a living wage, that's a form of self-exploitation. And when business owners self-exploit, they are way more likely to exploit the people that work for them as well. And so it becomes a really, really vicious cycle. Yes, agreed. Thank you for making that clear. Yeah, I think the whole, the, it's not just I'm lucky to work there, but this is a mission. How can you possibly kind of feeling around nonprofits. Like that's how you're you're so crass and there's something so so wrong with you for caring about this. Yeah. That's and that's a cultural story, right? That is a well-designed, like the system works as designed. The system is designed for us to not speak up for our own needs, even when it in the nonprofit world. And I just we need to change that. And you're doing it. I'm trying. (laughs) Uh, Last question from Kat. Do you have any tools or suggestions for neurodivergent business owners that are burned out and looking to pivot like you did, but are not sure what to do, especially if they can't completely stop coaching or working to take a break and recover from burnout without a huge financial risk? Yes. So I wrote a post, an article last year 
that simply seven simple business models. And what it does is take all the guesswork out of creating a business model that is aligned in the way that we were talking about today, where the different decisions that you have to make as a business owner are not independent, but are instead a system. I highly recommend it's not written specifically with neurodivergent people in mind, but it's written by a neurodivergent person. And <laughs> I would say even more importantly, it's written from the perspective of someone who has seen a lot of stuff over the last 14 years. And really, 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 my goal was to say, okay, these are seven buckets that your business might fit into. And you can choose the one that makes the most sense for you. They're all good, right? All of them are good. All of them work, but not all of them work for you. And so I think we need we start with actually looking at what is a business that meets my needs and my capacity and my limitations actually look like? What are the choices that go into that from a whole business, whole career perspective? And so while that's not necessarily going to guide you through the drawdown of one type of offer and the ramp up to another type of offer, It'll at least, I think, give you a place to think about where you're headed and how that might change your behavior right now. And then I have another article about solving for your personal needs as your primary, the the variable that you're solving for. And that's another piece of sort of the business model thing, which is I think of it as an equation. And so if you're the kind of neurodivergent that I am, this will probably resonate with you. If you're not, you may hate this, but I think of it as an algebra equation so that your business model is A, B, C, D, E, F, X, Y, Z, right? Each one of those variables can be solved for first. However, if the question is, how do I make a business that works for me? My argument is that your personal need variable is the one that should be solved for first. What do I need from this business financially, creatively, self-actualizationally, all of those things. What do I need from this business first? And then what does that mean for every other variable I might want to solve for? So those two articles, and they are long, they're meaty. I'm not just sending you to some silly worksheet somewhere. This is like, they're like little eBooks. The real stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Those two pieces should help you think through like, how might I go about making a shift? And what am I shifting into? Great. Awesome. Yeah. I actually used both those articles in designing my incubator program. I used them in thinking through like how to talk about business models, how to work through, I mean, we do it a little bit differently, but the process of solving for needs and so on, super useful, highly recommended. We don't have the links right now, but we will pop them into the show notes. Yeah. And those are our questions. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out today, spending all this time with me and answering all of these questions I've been dying to talk about. Well, thank you for asking them all and letting me nerd out about labor exploitation and autism and all sorts of random passion paradigm research. I love it. It's anytime. Anytime you want to talk about this stuff, I'm available. You're absolutely welcome back. (laughs) So I have to recommend to everybody your podcast, especially, which is called What Works. Where can people go to pre-order your new book? I mean, I assume everywhere, but everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But um, if you go to explorewhatworks.com slash book, there will be links to your Barnes and Nobles and your Targets and your Amazons and your bookshops and your independent retailers nearby. So 
that's a great place to go um, just as a jumping off point. Okay. So explorewhatworks.com slash book. Book. Yeah. Memorable. As easy I like as it. it gets. I know. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Boyhandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden. And I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways as well as any links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts, in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, and it would help us immensely if you would take a second and pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It just takes a few seconds, but it's actually a huge help to us and to our guests to get this podcast suggested to new listeners. We appreciate your help so much, and we'll see you next time on The Autonomous Creative.